0: Today's episode is brought to you by Slayhouse House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios.
1: So today we, we have a very special interview with Rich Hanley. Um, he is comics historian, editor, writer... Lord God of what was that? Lord God, (laughs) Emperor
2: of the Universe. Lord
1: God, Emperor of the Universe to Alpha Centauri, at least. So, hey, Rich, (laughs) welcome to our (laughs) welcome to our our show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Yes, definitely. We are very, very excited about this. Um, So uh, I know you and Trevor have had a lot of um, interactions. Oh, thank you my secretary brought me the water so um don't mind if i do <laughs> i'll have a
3: sambuca please
1: uh, there you go yeah uh, we also have donuts here rich if we can like pass them through the computer screen um uh, sounds good but
3: yeah <laughs> i don't think technology has allowed that yet so i appreciate the offer we're, we're, we're
0: waiting
2: we really need to we really need to push into that utopian dream where you know you just ask for whatever you want and it comes out of a comes out of a, a machine right we're I like
0: very, very close yeah, yeah. Um,
2: so we're really excited to have you on board.
1: Um, We've—I know you and Trevor. So, uh, do you guys, Trevor? Do you want to kind of take over yeah, a little bit here? I mean,
2: Rich, you've worked on a lot of stuff, um, kind of across the the nerd universe a little bit. You know, um, I think perhaps you're best known for your work on uh, Star Trek and and Star Trek comics, but you've also worked in Star Wars. You've done essays on batman you've done essays on dark shadows you've done um i mean just so much stuff can you walk us through a little bit of your career in publishing
3: uh sure um my writing career started in like the early to mid 90s i was doing work for um for the star wars franchise for lucasfilm um short stories a lot of uh a lot of role-playing game materials and magazine articles and so forth and from there it it, it, um i sort of transferred away from that into the star trek franchise i was writing i used to be a reporter for the star trek communicator and it just sort of went from there um you guys are younger than me so i don't know if you remember the the communicator unfortunately it, it, it it went away years ago but it was an amazing magazine and i loved working for that and uh but over the years, I've continued to work for the Star Trek franchise. Uh, the most recent thing um, was for the past several years, uh, I was the editor of Eagle Moss's Star Trek graphic novel collection. Uh, and, uh, oh, I mean, like you said, I've written for a lot of different things. It, it's uh, I'm, 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 I'm lucky in that regard. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, 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 I will never... Uh, take it for granted how, how fortunate I've been in that regard, you know, like I, I'm, I'm humbled and, and happy to be able to have done it, but, uh, just because of publishers like Sequart and, and boom studios and others that have had me, um, come in and, and write about comics, not so much write comics, unfortunately, but <laughs> writing about comics. Um, and, um, I'm, I'm doing something for IDW that I can't talk about, but, but I'll, I'll let you know when I can.
2: Oh, man. I, I, uh, so the, your IDW projects, I think, are some of the coolest projects I've ever seen. Um, thank you. Yeah, no. I, so I, I talked a little bit to Dean Mulaney, um at uh, the Library of American Comics uh, when yeah. I was kind of like getting into my dissertation. Um, he was a super cool guy. He was really generous. And Dean super- is awesome. Yeah, he was really generous in sharing um, some research material with me on a, a project that I was working on. It was so cool. Um, but in my, you know, love for all of all things, uh, you know, comics, all things, um, especially like newspaper comics, um, I came across, you know, several of the projects that you had worked on in conjunction mm-hmm. with IDW and uh, the Library of American Comics. Um, could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, like those Star Trek uh, strips that sure. you
3: collected? Sure. Yeah. You know, I. Um, it's actually an interesting story. At least I think so. But who knows? Maybe you all will not. <laughs> but, I, but I do. Uh, I've been a Star Trek comics collector since I was a teenager. And I, I remember still the first time that I picked up a Star Trek comic. It was uh, DC Comics number issue number nine. I was never a comics reader before this. And it was uh, right after Star Trek Three came out, and I was walking through a Walden Books when Walden Books (laughs) came. Yeah, I
0: remember that. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and at the time, you know, there was like a Star Trek novel occasionally. It wasn't like the constant outpouring that it became. So I would frequent Walden Books and look for the new one, and I walked past a comic rack and went, "What is that?" You know. (laughs) Uh, sadly this is not a visual podcast but I just did a, a Scooby-Doo double page um, <laughs> but <clears throat> uh, basically uh, it was a, the, the, the Mirror Universe group uh, crew, uh, crew and I just said I have to read this and then I thought well comics at the time were like what was it 75 cents so even if yeah. it sucked it wouldn't matter right And uh, <laughs> and uh, but it turned out that I loved it and I just kept reading them and in short order even though I was a teenager at the time i managed to track down everything that came before that. And um, over the years, I just kept collecting the comics, and uh, I I prided myself in saying I had everything. Then in the 90s, my friend uh, Ben Sastro-Adoyo, and I'm giving him a call-out because he's responsible for all this, um, went to a convention, and he kind of prided himself in, in making me surprised. So he walked in one day and handed me a comic that he had found, and he said, do you have this? And I thought, of course I. Wait, what? No, I don't. <laughs> and, and, and what it was was a British magazine called TV 21 uh, from back, in, back in, um, in the early, very early 70s. And it had a Star Trek comic in it, and it was original. My jaw hit the floor because it was number 72. <laughs> oh, wow. which meant there were at least 71 more comics I didn't own. But it turns out there were more than that because there were a total of 256 issues. Oh, my gosh. And I thought, you have got to be kidding me. (laughs) This was pre-internet, you know. I mean, it existed, but it's not like in in its current form. So finding it was especially difficult since this was only published in Britain and Mm. was the kind of thing that most people forgot about even existing so tracking these things down was not easy took me many years but I managed to find them all because I have a very 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 patient wife who did not uh did not leave me and um right around the the halfway point when I managed to have you know it's like it's like wow I've actually found outlets to be able to find these I came across evidence that another series of strips existed in the United States and I thought Oh my God, no! Uh, and that ran for five years, daily, in the, in the, uh, from the Los Angeles Times Syndicate. And I thought, this—the universe hates me. I don't
0: know how I can explain this to
3: my wife and, and stay married. So, but uh, but um, did a lot more, a lot more searching, and over time, somehow, I managed to complete both runs. So now I had nine years worth of, of weekly and daily comic strips. Um, that most fans did not know existed. And I thought, what can I do with this? I want to share these things. I don't want to be the only one who has these. And uh, so I started reaching out to various publishers, and there were legal reasons why at the time, the, well, to put it quite honestly, the paperwork was lost. They weren't sure <laughs> oh, at, yeah. on Paramount's end at the time wh- uh, what the contracts were like. And so that got put on hold. So instead, I reached out to Larry Nemechek at the Star Trek Communicator and pitched an article on these. And Larry was really so excited and said, absolutely. That was the first, um, my first Star Trek work. And I wrote an article about that for the Communicator, which led to my becoming a, a columnist for that magazine. But I, I, um, I kept wanting to get these things reprinted. And so over the years, I kept reaching out to different publishers And each case, it was the same. It happened to Pocket Books. It happened with Wildstorm. They wanted to do it. And uh, Paramount's legal division, so we don't, there's reasons why we can't do this. And then, right around, I guess it was 2012, I said, you know, I'm doing this one more time. (laughs) I'm like, the heartache is just too much. But these things are sitting on my shelves and they need to be shared. So I reached out one day to Chris Rial at, at IDW and said, okay, here, here's what I have. Would you be interested in reprinting it? About an hour later, I heard from Chris and said, who said, uh, this is amazing. I've been wanting to reprint these for a while but didn't have a source for these. <laughs> uh, and I said, well, uh, here. And, uh, and so here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to have you reprint all these materials, and I would, and this was a great way for me to position myself to have a job. Um, I said, I'd like to you know, uh, help you put these collections together and write all the supplementary materials for each volume. And uh, to my great surprise, they said yes. And next thing I knew, I was working with Dean on five hardcover books, and uh, three for the British strips and two for the US strips, which is funny, because the US strips are so much better. They should have had the three books. But <laughs> And uh, when that was all over, Dean had me also uh, help him uh, reprint all of the Star Wars newspaper strips, and I, I did the same function for those.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: the, those Star Long Wars. story books.
3: there. Sorry, but that's 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 what basically happened.
2: Oh no! Absolutely <laughs> worth it for sure. Oh yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah. Fun fun little uh, epilogue to that. Years several years later, I started doing the Eagle Moss books, and uh, before I became the editor, I was just a guy writing introductions to those books. Because um, I kind of made a name for myself by that point as a as like a Star Trek comics guy, and so when Eagle Moth started doing these books under a different editor, they they hired me to write the introductions to them, and one day my editor uh, handed uh, said, Hey, are you familiar with these really obscure comic strips from Britain? And uh, we're going to be reprinting those, and we'd like you to write an introduction if you you know if you have any knowledge of them. And I thought, Wow, okay. Uh, <laughs> Yes, I do know of those. Um, And and so that I wrote the introduction and only after I turned it in did I say, by the way, the the books that you're reprinting that I just wrote the introduction for, they're all scanned from my personal collection.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That
1: is amazing.
2: Yeah. So would you say that uh, it was really Star Trek that kind of pulled you into this this world of of pop culture? Because you've worked on a lot of projects that's not just Star Trek. Um, I, I mean, I, I know you.
3: If I had, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: Oh no, I was just gonna say. I know that you've, uh, y- you know, you you just told us that Star Wars was kind of the first stuff that you wrote. But w- where did your passion for this stuff kind of begin?
3: This is going to set me up uh, for all your listeners as the you know geeky mama's boy. But my mother, <laughs> um, my mom was a uh, first generation Star Trek fan. Um, and uh, I was born in 68, so I can truthfully say that I watched the original Star Trek for one year. However, I also was wearing <laughs> diapers at the time, <laughs> uh, so I don't remember any of it. But <laughs> she, when I grew up, she was a major fan of Planet of the Apes, Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Star Trek, The Outer Limits. So I grew up Dark Shadows. I, I grew up in a house where my mom was always watching this stuff, and... Um, so it was just natural that as I grew older, that's where my passion went. Her favorite show was Star Trek and The Twilight Zone. And so I grew up watching them a lot. Um, as far as, yeah, I guess, I mean, Star Wars is, is the first franchise work I did, but um, Star Trek is probably my mainstay. And also also Planet of the Apes. I did a lot of Planet of the Apes.
2: Yeah, I, I remember you writing a lot of the Planet of the Apes essays, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like, And kind of running across them uh, on social media as you were talking about them.
3: Um, It was, in fact, the same exact kind of work as I just said for the IDW books, uh, because Boom Studios um, reprinted the whole Marvel run of Planet of the Apes. And uh, I wrote all the uh, supplementary materials for those books, too. Oh, wow. So basically the same thing.
2: Uh, Right. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. So, I, I mean a lot of these pop culture franchises are like really important to people. You know, um, the, the yeah. Kenobi trailer just dropped. Um, yeah, good. <laughs> I know. I'm re- I'm really excited about it, but there are some fans who are not excited about it. They're like really kind of
3: vitriolic They're... about it. Um, you like, know, in any fandom, you're going to have to be very careful what I say here, I've gotten myself in trouble. <laughs> um, in any fandom, you're going to have an element that seems to uh, view fandom as a reason to be angry. I've yeah. never really understood that. I, I welcome all viewpoints. Well, I don't, I don't welcome racism, but I mean, I welcome <laughs> all viewpoints about a franchise. And uh, if people dislike something, they're still fans. If they like this and you don't, they're still fans. I, I'm, I, I, you know, I, the whole true fan thing never made any sense to me, but. <laughs> I also think that people spend way too much time being angry about something that they're supposed to be enjoying. Mm-hmm. If you don't like Kenobi, don't watch it. If you didn't like the Star Wars prequels, don't watch them. If you don't like Star Trek Discovery, don't watch it. You have ten other Star Trek shows. Right? <laughs> right. And, and um, I just think people spend way too much time getting angry about this. Look, the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes film... Is not a masterpiece, <laughs> but there are eight other Planet of the Apes movies, right? So, like, yeah. why get angry about
1: it? Uh, yeah, that's a good it's perspective. A good I like that. Yeah.
3: I, yeah. I
2: I like how like I'm really into the doors open, right? Like you can you can enjoy this stuff too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when it comes to you know some of this um this community of uh nerds whether well-meaning or or maybe not as well-meaning um
3: sometimes yeah sometimes
2: (laughs) you know how do you um i mean how do you kind of approach some of those communities who resist uh your efforts to kind of like historicize some of these franchises in their political moments
3: uh i ran into that head first with the Planet of the Apes books. Um, <laughs> they, that was a weird time. Uh, writing about the Marvel Planet of the Apes stories um, required that I get political. I had to because the original Planet of the Apes movies are political and anyone who doesn't mm. think that hasn't seen the original Planet oh, of yeah, the Apes movies. totally. Um, you know, the fourth one is a, is a metaphor for the civil rights movement, you know? I mean, it's like, so there's, there's, there's a lot going on there. Mm. and uh and and so i wrote these in these these essays for these books framing uh, the plan of the apes movies uh from the standpoint of how in marvel there were these groups called the ape supremacists who rode around on horses with white hoods killing people who believed in equality among humans and apes Ugh. and i said mm. well this is a pretty blatant parallel i i was <laughs> talking about what was going on and I had people coming at me claiming that I was um, <laughs> I, never in my life have I been called this uh, a race traitor. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and, and tried to get me uh, fired from several different um, um, publishers because I was a hate monger. <laughs> Simply because I said that racists wearing hoods Riding around on horses, setting fire to things, oh, I don't know, could be a parallel to the <laughs> two-clock <thoughts of> play <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, clearly, I was way off base on this. They're nice people who help their moms on Sunday. Um, <laughs> oh, but, uh, yeah, so for whatever reason, that really triggered people. But here's a question I have for you. because. Yeah. This is what always makes me – this is what I always ponder when things like that happen. When you have a franchise like Planet of the Apes or Star Trek or or, um, Twilight Zone, where the entire basis of it is on the idea that fascism is bad and (laughs) racism is bad, what draws those people to these franchises? Why would a bigot enjoy Star Trek? Why would a bigot enjoy Planet of the Apes? I'm often left really fascinated by this. Is it is it a disconnect that they simply aren't mentally equipped to recognize the messages (laughs) being tossed to them, or are they actually uh, perceiving the message as the exact opposite of what it is? I I don't know. Like, do they see Captain Kirk as a David Duke parallel? (laughs) Oh my gosh! (laughs) I don't. I I don't know. Like, I wonder what is it about Star Trek or Planet Apes that would actually appeal. To to a bigot, I, I don't get it.
2: Just like everything else, they probably interpret it however they feel like interpreting it. Well, so yeah. I, this is a really interesting question because, uh, yeah. you know, I teach world literature, um, and uh, and I'm frequently, you know, running across kids who don't necessarily know how to read critically, and I think part of that is kind of learned. When I open the class, I always say. One of the things that, that we're going to have to understand as we enter into this is that all art is political,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: uh, and I think that uh, even the art that claims to be apolitical is a political statement. Right. The depoliticization well of, of art is still a, 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 a political play. Right. So mm-hmm. in order for us to understand anything, any art we come across, we need to be searching for. What was this political moment? What were the cultural mm-hmm. influences on this text? What are the social influences on this text? What are the economic influences on this, this text? This text? Um, you know, when we read like Tang poetry or, or poetry from that, that um, period in China's history, you know, we, we kind of need to understand um, this was poetry that was kind of expected of everyone of a certain... You know, a certain age, a certain political class, a certain um, literacy level, right? Um, And and although this was really proliferate, um, is that a word? I just invented that word. Sure, we'll take it. it. We'll take it. Yeah, we'll (laughs) take it. (laughs) 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 I mean, although it was, you know, it was everywhere. um, We still have to kind of understand the people who were creating these were the people who held uh, positions of power, right? The average, the average person, the normal person, the person who's working a field somewhere wasn't necessarily educated in this poetry. So we, we get a lot of beautiful poetry, but it is also a snapshot of poetry from a cultural elite. So we kind of have to, you know, we kind of have to adjust our expectations a little bit when we encounter this stuff. Right. I also
1: look at these people, you know, from the, from another perspective, I look at these people who are, um, you know the 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 prejudiced people, the biased people, the bigots, or whatever that are drawn to these shows. I feel like from my interactions with them, they are institutionalized in their own upbringing. So be it through yeah, church or through their own prejudices introduced by their family, it's They've been
3: indoctrinated,
1: indoctrinated, yeah. yes, definitely. and yeah. mm-hmm. and they um, so that kind of hinders their own ability to critically, Analyze anything else. So, so they they are very much the the people who believe that art exists in this kind of vacuum, and they don't see it as relating to mm. the rest of the world when that's absolutely not the yep. case. Right?
3: Yeah. yeah. I, I think. Yeah. I think Star Trek and Planet of the Apes, and, and I mean to some extent Star Wars, although it's, it's you know it's a very different franchise. But <laughs> science fiction in general. Has to be viewed through the lens of the era in which it was produced. Mm. I mean, when people complain about modern-day Star Trek being different from 1960 Star Trek, the answer is obvious: it's not the 1960s. Right? right? I mean, (laughs) are they different shows? Yes, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I love the original show. But if you have a, Mm. if you were to to make the 1960s show today in which all the women wore mini skirts and said captain i'm <laughs> frightened instead of having meaningful roles i mean you know that would be a bad thing right so <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the, the lens the, the lens of criticism needs to be one of it's based on the era in which something came out hmm. and it and and i think sometimes that the people watching things are I don't know if it's willful or if it's, well, it's definitely ignorance, but I don't know if it's willful ignorance <laughs> that prevents them from seeing the bigger picture. And when, yeah. when I had people, uh, coming at me for, for talking for the outrageous assumption that Planet of the Apes was political, <laughs> <laughs> I used to be like, I still can't grasp my head about it. that. That's like like complaining that Harlequin novels have sex in them. I mean, it just doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Like I, I'm I'm offended. I went on Pornhub last night and there was nudity. I'm really offended by this.
0: Very you know? inappropriate.
3: <laughs> I went on the news and people were wearing suits. I'm just like, what in the world? And, and giving headlines, you know? Right. But like I just I don't understand. Like well, what's your expectation when you go yeah. into watching science fiction from the sixties if you're not expecting a political statement to be made, right? I mean what can you do?
2: I love the idea of of people being like Planet of the Apes is apolitical or non-political when like the whole and the whole punchline of that movie is Charlton Heston staring at the the Statue of Liberty and being like, yes, right.
0: you you madman, you you know, you, yeah. man, you, you the, it, damn the, you.
3: The entire point of those five movies is that religious dogmatism and anti-science and fascism mm. and hatred, Led to the fall of mankind and replacement uh, with another, spe- replacement by another species. Yeah. And here's the kicker: it may have been divine will because we suck so much, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so like, like, how do you not? To view that in a political light. It's, I, yeah. it's, 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 it's staggering and frankly, it's impressive. I'm actually impressed that somebody got through those movies and didn't make the connection. I, it's, 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 not many people would be able to pull that off. That's impressive.
2: Uh, it really does re, kind of reframe the whole movie. <laughs> I just liked it for the monkeys.
3: <laughs> I'm, wrongly, yeah. I'm, I'm really into pause. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yes. So I like the color green. The color green is pretty. That's <laughs> what Planet of the Apes is about, the yeah, green yeah. of the chimp outfit. It's a fashion, it's a fashion movie. Yeah. yeah, there you go. It's just whatever you want <laughs> so to Maybe be, they right? were
2: just fans of uh, Charlton Heston's like, NRA years, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that. yeah.
3: See, it's funny you say that because I remember when the Tim Burton movie came out and they were so offended that they had their chest in... With the Cheston, the <laughs> Cheston. <laughs> oh, kids don't do drugs. Um, anyway, yeah, <laughs> that that, that other oh, here, here to for, from here, here in shall be known as Cheston. Yeah, uh, Cheston, <laughs> like like <laughs> uh, that that his character uh, made an anti-gun statement, and to that I say, putting aside everything else, I just said, get a sense of humor, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one thing that is missing. People just are so unwilling to laugh. Uh, I try to laugh every day. I uh, try to laugh every hour, and people—you know—so many people don't get that, and I think that that's yeah. why fandom has become such a, an angry place. People forget mm. how to laugh.
2: Yeah. Oh gosh, there's—I—I uh, I don't know if I could go through a day without it. But we laugh at ourselves every episode.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you want a really good laugh. Listen to our early episodes; like they're they're oh, pretty weird. funny. yeah, it's <laughs> <around>. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> so
1: sometimes intentionally too.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, uh, how long does it typically take you to do the research for some of your projects when you when you do like edit a book and and you write that that really well researched uh, preface?
3: Oh wow! It um, honestly it. There's such a huge variation. It depends on the franchise. It depends on my passion for it. It depends on how much uh, literature is out there or how much, how many episodes. Um, it depends on if I've eaten breakfast <laughs> uh, or, or whether or not there's a movie I'd really prefer to be watching instead of writing. Uh, there's a lot, you know, so it depends. Uh, um Case in point, um, the most recent thing I, I worked on was that I, I con, uh, contributed an afterword to a book about dark shadows yeah. from Jim Beard and Charles Rutledge. And the book is uh, all about how children um, in the uh, in the 60s rushed home every day to watch dark shadows after school and how it, those same people are now writers in their 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. and uh, and And their careers go back to the fact that when they were little kids, they rushed, they, they could not, they, everything had to be put on hold so they, they could see a, a, a vampire who had started out as a rapey serial killer, but ended up with <laughs> the show as well. Um, and uh, and um, I was three when that show ended, so I can't truthfully say that I was one of those kids because I, I wasn't in school.
0: Mm.
3: But my mother was a fan, and so I wrote the afterword to this book uh, from the standpoint of everybody else in the book is the first generation fan, what's their legacy? The legacy is people like me who were the, the second generation that kept it going. Mm. And mm. so that one, to answer your question, took me two hours from the moment Jim invited <laughs> me to do it. I turned it in two hours later. And the reason was I had, I was just so, it was a, I was passionate about this. Um, <laughs> it was a fun topic. It didn't require a lot of research. Um, and most importantly, I had, recently finished rewatching the whole show and it was therefore in my memory, but when it comes to something else where there's a lot of research involved, it it takes up a lot of my time. (laughs) Um, I write a weekly column for Hero Collector about Star Trek comics. It's Mm -hmm. been going now for several years. I've been running from the 60s to the present looking at how every story that's been published uh, approaches Star Trek from the idea of prequels, sequels, and tie-ins to on-screen Star, star Trek. Mm. So if I'm writing about a story that had no prequels, sequels, and tie-ins, <laughs> it's actually a pretty quick article. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, if one that is a sequel to 15 different episodes, there's a lot of these. <laughs> and oh, uh, no. the, uh, well, my friend Joe Dilworth and I um, just turned in a manuscript a Sequel for a book about Stargate. And that required... A lot of research that sucked (laughs) i'll tell you why because my essay for that book was on the cartoon stargate infinity oh and stargate infinity is the (laughs) i love this franchise i love every other version of star trek (laughs) but stargate infinity is the televised equivalent of a burrito fever dream (laughs) (laughs) uh, having just sit and watch it all uh was interesting But I knew that nobody else involved in the book would volunteer to watch that and write an essay about it because who wants to watch 26 episodes with no redeeming value? Uh, So so I'm a team player, and I said, I got this, guys. Uh, So for that, yes, there was a lot of work. None of it fun. Um, But it was, and yeah, at the same time, and this is the key, incredibly enjoyable. Because yeah. I joke around about the burrito dream and all that. But the truth is, I wouldn't do any of this if I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. Right. And anyone who's, who, who is doing this kind of work has to enjoy it. It, it. it has to be the reason you're doing it. You don't make a lot of money at it. So <laughs> there's no reason to watch 26 episodes of a really terrible cartoon from an era of <laughs> terrible cartoons. Uh, that is single-handedly the worst thing about a franchise, unless you have a reason to do that. (laughs) um, And in my case, it's because it was just a lot of fun to try to come at the essay, not from a vitriolic standpoint, but from the standpoint of, okay, is there value in this? Is there a reason? Is is there something I can take from this that is not crap? (laughs) And, (laughs) Yeah, there is actually there were, I, I I had fun looking at it from that standpoint. So that required a lot of work. The dark shadows essay poured out of me faster than I could write. (laughs)
2: That's awesome. awesome. I I love that approach to, you know, I've, I've been on this journey um, to reread. I'm going to drop my stupid star Wars update. Um, I've been on this journey to try to, to read every star Wars novel. Oh my goodness. Yeah.
3: Are you planning to live to be 263 years old? Right. No, that's exactly (laughs) Exactly. right.
2: Um, I didn't realize Mm. how much star Wars there, there was when I started this, this dumb project. And, uh, and uh, it, it has just consumed like my, entire life for the last year as I've been, you know, just kind of like slowly going through it with, with some of the other literature that I read. And, um, and some of it is, I think like some of the best Star Wars I've encountered, I absolutely love it. And then there's some of it that I'm like, this is so bad. It's just
3: so bad. Back when I was doing Lucas from work, I had to read everything. And sometimes that was, sometimes that was a good thing. sometimes (laughs)
2: sometimes <laughs> well, yeah okay so
3: I, i'm not gonna say which ones i dislike i'm not gonna i'm not gonna you know i won't do that I, but uh, i can respect that
2: i you know yeah. I, I i i think the thing that i i really um have to express is because because i know a lot of these creators are you know they're still making stuff um they're still writing you know i think kevin j anderson is is still mm-hmm. just you know kind of cranking some stuff out and um, I think he
3: has a Dune book every 12 minutes, if I remember correctly. I, I think you are right,
2: Rich. I am yeah. almost positive that's the, the uh, you real know
3: pe- people will say what they will. I know Kevin has both his fans and attractors, but I am in awe of his output. It's incredible. I, I wish I was even a tenth as prolific as Kevin. He sneezes novels. Yeah, (laughs) I I, I don't know I've never in my life Seen anybody able to write a book as fast As he does and I'm in awe of it
2: Yeah no I I, and that's the thing I I come across these projects and I Think to myself you know some of these are are Really just not very good and Yet at the same time there's so much Joy I get out of the process Of of, you know engaging With that piece of fiction and when it Comes to you know like writers like Like Kevin um, Man I think that Like what the ideas he has and and how he kind of cranks this stuff out um, is really incredible. It's really impressive. And I I think um, it's it's just fascinating to me that there's so much of it.
3: You know, Kevin contributed a short story to an essay to a Okay, that made no sense. I just said he contributed a short story to an essay anthology. Why would you Why would you ever submit a short story to an essay anthology? Yeah. Anyway, he submitted a short story to a short story anthology that I edited for Titan Books um, with Jim Beard called Tales from the Forbidden Zone. It was a Plan of the apes a, a, oh, short story wow. anthology. And so we invited a bunch of authors to submit um, ideas, and we encouraged them to think outside the box because we knew if we didn't do that, everybody was going to pitch us a, a love story about Cornelius and zero because everyone <laughs> loves them. And I joked around that if that happened, we'd have to name the book zero loves Cornelius. And, and I was like, <laughs> I don't want to do that. You know, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, I was hoping we'd get at least one and we did, but because, we, because I, we encouraged everyone to do this, we got some wild ideas and Kevin's was about dinosaurs oh and it worked yeah it was fun (laughs) Fun story i i when he pitched it jim and i were like huh you know what that's just so crazy it might work (laughs) and uh yeah it was a lot of it was a fun story it really was yeah (laughs) i i
2: in retrospect i really loved the jedi academy trilogy that he wrote uh in the moment, I was not very appreciative of it because I was like, "Kevin's, I don't know." It felt really thin in places, but but I think he understands the characters really, really well. I, I think he understands, you know, like like what the stakes are and, and why you know we should kind of invest in a story around these characters. I think it's really cool.
3: I'm an unabashed fan of the Jedi Academy books. I know before when I said that he has his fans and his detractors, I know that those were the books I was thinking about. Yeah. That. yeah. Yep. They, they, they seem to polarize readers, but I, i loved them i yeah. thought that they were fun yeah. um and honestly any book that has the balls to create blobstacle races i respect man you know what we talked Blobstacles <laughs> were hilarious we, i don't care what anybody when said. we did our our
2: star wars update uh the, the two things we talked about the most uh was the blobsticle race and han solo's weekend skiing with kip Dern. with kip yeah, I skiing with Kip.
3: But if, see, Star Wars. I think people sometimes forget that Star Wars, at its core, is fun. Oh yeah, right? it's it, got to be goofy, right? And that's what Kevin gets right. Kevin get, you yes. know, Kevin gets no no writer gets it perfectly right. But one 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 thing I think I really enjoy about Kevin's Star Wars work is he has a sense of giddy fun yes. that comes across. He gets that this universe is supposed to make you chuckle.
2: And not only that, but I think that, it, again, coming back to his characters and the way that he really um, builds on those characters, uh, he, he I mean, he just gets it. He gets the spirit of what these characters are supposed to represent. He understands the arc, the emotional arc that they're supposed to mm-hmm. go through. Um, I, I've been recently reading the Jedi Academy, or not the, the, the Young Jedi Knight, uh, series right with with mm-hmm. Han Solo's kids that he, that right. he wrote with uh, Rebecca his wife and mm-hmm. um, those books are uh, like unabashedly some of the most fun I've had with Star Wars.
3: Oh yeah, those are fun. Those are really good books. Yeah, they're uh, they're great. They're not yeah, and they're not even really young adult fiction, even though that's how they're marketed. They're just good Star Wars. Yeah, no, I agree. I
2: I think and mm-hmm. and the 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 lessons that these kids have to kind of learn and and the 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 mature decisions they have to make about the the mistakes that they make, I think are just great. It's, it's really good yes, fiction. So I want to talk to you. Uh, this is just kind of an aside, but uh, we need to talk to you about Max Rebo. Um <laughs>
3: <laughs> well that's not a quite yeah i actually forgot all about that okay yeah go ahead
2: no so I, we were just uh when max Rebo kind of resurfaced in the book of boba fett you had a uh, kind of an anecdote about you know being the guy who wrote max Rebo's uh backstory for star Wars. was it star wars insider or
3: yeah uh, back when um when, uh, when i used to write for the insider they they wanted to uh well, the special editions. I, 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 keep in mind that I'm uh, I'm older now. My memory is not always one hundred percent. It's like this is like many jobs ago. But I think, and if and I know there's going to be somebody out there going, well, I've just checked Wikipedia, and he's got his dates wrong by a month. Um, but I think <laughs> I think that this was after the special editions had come out. I think was why they chose to do they, the, the insider wanted to. Update the existing um, backstory for what was originally three members of the band. It was now a dozen. And uh, around the same time that this came out, the um, Dark Horse's Star Wars Tales had had a uh, had added a um, like a a Max Rebo wannabe, like their biggest <laughs> fanboy. It's a pretty funny story. Uh, uh, Tick talosh I think his name was. About this guy who follows Max Rebo Band around about like a groupie and wants to join, and so that had just come out, and I thought, all right, if they're going to have me write this, I'm having Tick Kalash join the Max Rebo Band. So that's one thing I, that was my goal. Uh, but yeah, so basically, I, I I said, right, well, I hear all these characters who suddenly are the Max Rebo Band in the special edition. I'm going to have fun with this, and there was some stuff that had already been established. It wasn't like I created all of it. But I I wrote, I mean, a lot of it was new material that I came up with and some of it was stuff that had been uh, done elsewhere. And one thing I was relatively proud of myself for, but more than anything, just really surprised that Lucasfilm even allowed this. Was that I said? Well, nobody names their kid Max Rebo. I realize this is Star Wars, where people have goofy names like Sles Bagano, but <laughs> but, uh, but I don't think his name was Max Rebo when he was born. Like I doubt there was like Johnny and Mary Rebo who said, "We just had our blue elephant kid, and in our family, every child is named Max, and we we're going to continue this tradition." I don't think that's what happened. So i came up with the name cerulean fantel uh, but uh, cerulean differently which is means blue and fantel being an anagram of elephant so max (laughs) rimo's real name is blue elephant but because i came up with a weird sci-fi spelling of the of the word cerulean and you know it's not elephant it's fantella i wasn't sure if anybody caught on and what really struck me as funny is it was years later before anybody asked me, Are you the idiot who named Max Rebo Blue Elephant? And I'm like, Yes! <laughs> yes, I am! <laughs> oh, man, I love it. But here's the cool thing yeah. I know that Kenner, Kenner started coming out with figures of these characters. And I think it was, again, someone's going to correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure it was rapper Tooney. Where the, the name I came up with ended up on the Kenner card. I think it was that <laughs> one. Um, Rapatolana Watney Tiv Totalon, I think is the name I came up with. <laughs> yeah, Rapatalana Watney, I think, because I said rapper toonie, nobody names their kid Rapper <laughs> These are musicians. There's not Mr. and Mrs. Tooney, and they named their kid rapper. These are musicians, you know, like, they obviously, so I need get, these people have to have real names. And I think it was Raper with a, with a card, the card the the card back had the name I created, and I said, "I'm done. I can die now." <laughs> <laughs> no one knows it, but I'm on a Kenner. I'm on. I'm on. am on a, 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 a Star Wars. Like action a Star figure Wars action figure card.
0: <laughs> I'm that's, done. That's yeah. incredible. <laughs> hey,
2: and yeah. I I, th- I remember too. Uh, you you tried to rename the musical genre of uh, of Star Wars, and it didn't take.
3: Sort of. That's not It's it. You're close. I was using the name that actually already existed uh west end games i think it was had called the uh the music the type of music that is sung in 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 the cantina band right. scenes uh jizz yeah we've
0: been around this block before for sure
3: yeah uh, and um you fun. know, you'd think that when they heard that somebody would have gone, Come on. <laughs> Come on Anyway, anyway. Uh, so, uh given that this had long been established, I I had pointed out that um uh in effect it had been established for um the character of Ivar Orbis was I think the character's name was the manager of the God, God I haven't even thought about these names for so many years. But uh It's um, it's it's from uh, one of the one of the guys who who formed uh, oh man, now I don't remember remember this anymore, and I wrote the damn thing. (laughs) Oh man, that's that's really sad. (laughs) But in any case, um. The, the whole, the whole uh, genre of music was called jizz wailing, which is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and I wanted to use that term, not thinking anybody would have a problem with it. Ten years of Lucasfilm oh. using the term jizz wailing. Uh, oh, okay, sure. Uh, you know, like I, I, I want to make a joke there, and I'm not going to. So, um, so I, I got the feedback I got was, oh no, 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 we can't use the word jizz. And I insert Scooby-Doo double tape here because, like, but you've been doing that for 10 years. How did, I didn't come up with this. So I was like, okay, they said you have to come up with another word for it. I'm like, but, but that's like, what? Like, there's a name for it. How am I supposed to, like, I'm going to be the asshole. Right? all of fandom is going to say this guy doesn't know what it's called how you know don't hire him okay so they're like we're gonna call it jez j-e-z-z and i thought oh yeah that's so much better <laughs> that's so much better like to just be one letter off of of a sexual innuendo that makes so much sense. um yeah i don't even remember what it ended up being um but I just remember doing a massive face palm when they told me that you can't use the word that exists already for this music um, and stop being a pervert. Okay. <laughs> yeah. oh I mean, it was—it was—you uh, know—I I chuckled about it afterwards, but I'm like, I really am going to be viewed as the guy who doesn't know the trivia. And
2: I'm like, hey. <laughs> so, as yeah. someone who has both adapted, uh, you know, kind of stories from a franchise into another medium right um what do you think goes into creating a successful adaptation from from one medium to another
3: when you say um what goes into it do you mean on the the corporate end or on the creative no
2: i i think more on on like the maybe the creative end right because because i think of I think of a lot of the these cross media promotions you know whether it be the novelization of star trek or mm-hmm. um you know the the novelization of star wars or like star trek which i think has a really rich tradition in comic books right mm-hmm. um a, as well as television and film you know all of right. these being very different mediums how do you create something that feels consistent um, and, and and what makes for a good adaptation?
3: Well, I, you know, anyone who's ever worked on any kind of franchise work can tell you that one of the hardest things to do when you, um, when you approach a short story or a comic or a um, supplementary role, supplementary uh, role-playing game material for a franchise is the knowledge that people are going to be viewing it with the eye of, did he get it or did she get it right? You know, do they know what they're doing? Does this seem like the franchise that I'm used to? So what goes into it is uh, several different things. One, an understanding of the material two, hopefully a good idea for something new. I mean, uh, sequels are great. I mean, as I already said, I write a weekly column about sequels. So clearly I like them, but If all you do is just rehash something that's already been done, that gets boring really fast. I I can use um, the book Tales from the Forbidden Zone as an example. One of the things that we were so excited about when we got our pitches is that every writer came in, um, and these were all established novelists, every writer came in with their own unique perspective uh, on on the universe. And so what went into making that book was Taking seriously the, the word tails in the title, the idea that these are different perspectives on Planet of the Apes that you might not have f- thought about before. I think one thing that any editor or any writer, if they're, the, they're well-chosen, there are probably some whom this isn't true, but if they're well-chosen, they're thinking about not how does the franchise serve me, but how can I serve the franchise. mm in the mm-hmm. end, if you're being hired to write a Star Wars or Star Trek or Plan of the Apes or Battlestar Galactica or whatever piece of fiction or something that's going to enrich the franchise, yeah, there's there's a there's, a, there's a, a large amount of ego that says my name will be on the cover and I rock. But there's also <laughs> the fact that in the end, if if it doesn't if it doesn't make the franchise better than when you went into it, it wasn't worth publishing. Mm. You know, like it that yeah. so so. Um, with tales from the Forbidden Zone, for example, we got we received pitches um, not just about the typical chimps and gorillas and, and, and orangutans and human mutants and and and, uh, and, and, and um, mutes, but also uh, bonobos and um, gibbons, you know things that you, uh, that you don't normally see associated. Uh, although Marvel did do that, I, I should say they did have a gibbon, but. Um, so that was fun. Dinosaurs, you, you really don't associate with playing <laughs> Um So that book from our perspective was an effort to leave something new in the franchise because, um, these were writers, mostly some of them were returning, but most of the writers had never worked on the franchise before. And some of them did things that nobody would have expected, like a play of the ape story set in Asia, for example. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, and so so I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of gone on a tangent here, but w- what goes into writing, um, creating new material for a universe uh, should be, in my opinion, am I offering something of value or am I just throwing my name on it um, because I get to add another credit to my name? And I, I think that that second one is the wrong reason to be doing it. Like if somebody asked me, for example, to start writing um, – my Little Pony Fiction. <laughs> I'd have to say no, uh, because I know three things about My Little Pony. They're mine, they're small, and they're ponies. anything um, else about them. Uh, so all I could really do in doing that would be to make the franchise worse. <laughs> That's a really good
2: perspective. Yeah. So... um as we kind of start wrapping up, I know that you you share a lot of stuff on on social media about your comics collection, um, and yeah, which we can see uh, the, our audience. Can't only see three it of you, you can
3: see, but none of the listeners. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> but I,
2: I think I feel like your your shelves are are uh, like a, a backdrop on your Twitter page or something. Oh, I, I feel like I've seen them before. <laughs> mm-hmm. um,
3: and that's just a part of it, by the way. All right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know,
2: I know you have a quite a large collection. Um, but some of the stuff you share on social media, which I think is really fun, is uh, like the, the weird unlicensed media that you find from foreign countries. Um,
3: yeah, I get a kick out of that stuff, yeah.
2: Yeah, so what are some of the, the weirdest or coolest or, or like strangest um, objects in your, your collection of this media?
3: Um, some of the strangest things that I have, uh, well, okay, I mentioned before that my friend Ben had hit me up with that TV21 issue and that started me on a path I hadn't even considered. Is there stuff published outside the United States? Huh, okay. Uh, And then then the internet happened uh, and I said, I don't need a bank account. Um, (laughs) And uh, (laughs) and, uh, I started looking around and discovered that there were so there was actually other stuff too like uh i my friend mark martinez who who right who also has a, a star trek uh comics um website he and i have been for years helping each other find obscurities that nobody <laughs> in their right mind would want to own let alone <laughs> uh, spend money on um but one of some of the stranger things let's see uh in 1980 there was a um there was an adaptation in China of Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, and, uh, man, I wish, the, I wish I could hold this up for the viewers to see. Um,
0: <laughs>
3: first of all, it's the size of my palm. So it's really small. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, that I didn't know by the way, from the pictures until it finally showed up from a guy in China who found one for me. I was expecting a comic book and I was like, "What? the it is really small, but, uh, the, the the artist had never seen Star Trek, and hadn't watched the movie, and so Spock is Ayatollah Khomeini. <laughs> <laughs> Ilya is Ursa from Star Trek, uh, from Superman 2. Oh wow! Uh, uh, I think Captain Kirk it looks like Colonel uh, Steve Trevor uh, in, in, in okay. Air Force uniform. The uh, Starfleet looks like the U.S. Air Force. Uh, the Klingons can only be described as demons from Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> so that one's pretty bizarre. Uh, other ones I have found, uh, let's see, um, a, uh, a, a set of um, six comics of Planet of the Apes from Indonesia, uh, which are really cool, actually. They're well-written and well-drawn and have nothing to do with Planet of the Apes. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, because there's things like, uh, you know, like, uh, like, a, a, a Aladdin mythology is worked into it, for example. Oh, wow. wow. Um, yeah, but it's wild stuff. Uh, oh, I don't know. Jeez. Like, Star Trek comics uh, from Indonesia, where they're wearing pink, you know. Oh, uh, uh, sure, yeah. So, yeah, some wild, wild stuff. And, the question would become, well, why would I want this? <laughs> um, the answer is because you don't have it. <laughs> 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 no, I, I jo- I, I'm joking about that last one. The truth is I just like finding it and, and scanning it and then posting it online so people can see it. Because I, yeah. What got me into all of this in the first place was the idea that I, uh, of, I think it's fun to, sh- to find things people don't have and share them. Cause it's a sense of community, you know, like I wouldn't have these things if other people weren't sharing them with me. So it's a pay it forward model. Yeah. If I find these things, it's really cool. You've probably never heard of it. So here, yeah, look at it, oh, gaze you. upon its absurdity.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think you posted one this morning uh, was it like an Italian Spider-Man comic? Or
3: You, you know I don't even know what that was If uh, <laughs> this wasn't so much an obscurity that I found, this was more of a joke uh, some, somebody had posted a picture of um, what looks like an Italian Spider-Man comic and sometimes the funniest stuff comes out of foreign comics because Something that means something in one language means something totally different uh, when viewed from an American standpoint. And the cover says "The Terror of MAGA" in capitals M A G A, (laughs) and I just thought that is so freaking hilarious. So I had I I just posted it and said submitted without comment. Italian Spider Man fighting the Terror of MAGA. (laughs) Um, How relevant? We need Italian Spider Man. We need him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't actually own that one. That's, 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 that's insane. But what I do own is a Spider-Man issue from the seventies, um, published in, um, Oh, oh, Mexico, in which the villain is general Urko from the planet of the apes TV series. Oh, wow.
2: So it was like an unexpected kind of crossover.
3: Yeah. And if you go to Hunter's planet of the apes archive, it's a, a pretty much the planet of the apes fan website. Uh, you can find scans of it that I I, um, I posted for Hunter and submitted so everybody can read it. But I also translated it into English because I'm just that freaking crazy. <laughs> uh, it's what I do when I find foreign comics is I will actually, if I can translate it, I will. If not, I will find someone who can. And then I re-letter them in English and, and post scans because... If I have to suffer through this insanity, so do you. Uh, But the Spider-Man story is actually really wild because the idea behind it is that it's a (laughs) guy. This is so insane. Um, The villain is a sci-fi geek who is obsessed with General Urko because he's awesome. That's the idea. So he's a fan of the Planet of the Apes TV shows. And here's the kicker, if you know Planet of the Apes, the outfit that he makes for himself to call himself Urko is orange, which means he's a plan- he's a fan of the Planet of the Apes cartoon. So the villain <laughs> is a fan of General Erko <laughs> who has Fred Flintstone's voice, and he creates he creates for himself a supervillain persona, running around as an orange armored gorilla who's, who sounds like Fred Flintstone and commits crimes. Because he's awesome. That's what this <laughs> villain's premise is. And uh, I just honestly, you that's perfection. You cannot top that. After you've read this, you can just toss away your comics. <laughs> oh,
2: man, I love that. Well, um, thank you so much for, for coming on our little show and sharing your time with us, Rich. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to, to kind of plug for us?
3: Uh, well, there's a crack in my ceiling. I need to plug. Uh, <laughs> no, um, honestly, uh, let's see. Well, okay. Upcoming work. Um, the, uh, the dark, the dark shadows book that I just mentioned, which is called running home to shadows. It'll be out from Becky books in May. And, and the sad thing there is that the reason it's called Becky books is that, um, uh, Jim, the editor, Jim Beard's wife, Becky passed away a couple years ago no, and she was a dark bad. shadows, uh, fanatic. She was going to be among the contributors. Uh, and so he mm-hmm. launched an imprint called Becky books um, and Becky was really sweet. So I it, it, like, this is a great way to honor her. Um, the Stargate book um, uh, is called um, unauthorized off-world activation. Uh, and I thought that was damn clever because it's <laughs> un, unauthorized. Uh, John, John Ordover came up with the title. We had called it uh, Chevron seven locked and he said, no, why you should call it this. And we went, Well, yes, we should. (laughs) Um, That'll be out from Sequart probably by June. Oh, wow. And that's pretty much it. If people go to richhandley.com, it's uh, H A N D L E Y, richhandley.com. They can follow my blog and I announce all upcoming projects there.
2: That's awesome. Awesome. And we can also follow you on Twitter. Yes, you can.
3: Rich Handley Trek. I will have to look because I don't. I never look myself up. Right. So I think that's what I called myself. Yeah. At rich Hanley track. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which looking back is really geeky and I wish I'd just called myself rich Hanley. I don't know why I did that. Uh, I mean, you (laughs) know what? I guess I had to. Yeah. yeah, Wherever your allegiance lies. Right. (laughs) That's the thing is like, I guess at that, you know, at that point when I launched it, I was doing the, uh, the graphic novel collection, but it was really short sighted. It's like, it's like, when you're if you're in your 20s and you get a tattoo that says you know your girlfriend's name on it and then you don't marry her it's really <laughs> short-sighted <laughs>
2: <laughs> well thank you so much for being on the show this thank has you, been rich. an absolute delight to talk to you
3: absolutely anytime you want to do this again i'd love to this was fun all, all right definitely. definitely
2: we will definitely bring you
1: up thank you definitely. thank uh, you rich thank you so much right. rich, rich. Mm-hmm. thank you